Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Well, Lord, I do thank you for these ancient words. I thank you for the gift that it is that we have these letters recorded. I pray now for your Holy Spirit to come, that you would help me preach well, that you would help each person have an open heart to receive this gift of grace. We ask you for freedom in Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned at the informal welcome, I'm going to be preaching today from Galatians 5. So if you want to find that in your bulletin, you can stay there. Um, That text was selected because at Grace Anglican Church, we are preaching through Paul's letter to the Galatians this summer. So when David and I got our idea of uh, exchanging pulpits, I showed him this preaching schedule and I said, which one of these texts do you want to take? And this is the one he picked. And I don't know if that's because it fit his schedule or he really wanted to preach on this text. I actually think it's it's the latter reason that this text is so rich. So he said, but you can preach on whatever you want at at Church of Our Savior. And I said, well, I want to stay in this text because it is so good. For freedom, Christ has set you free. So this morning, I want to talk about that word, freedom, and what is Christian freedom as opposed to the rivaling ideas of freedom. So that is a word that is on our lips often as a people, Americans, really throughout the world. And think of some of the different ways it's used. The economist cries out for free trade. The capitalist wants free enterprise without government restriction or oversight. The, uh, the president, the, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he gave his State of the Union speech in 1941, famously talked of four freedoms. And in his speech, he talked of freedom of speech everywhere, freedom of worship everywhere, freedom from want everywhere, and freedom from fear everywhere. It was a moving speech. On a more banal level, we talk about fat-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, caffeine-free. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? We use free a lot. Um, Yeah, exactly, lactose-free. We talk about free rain, and we say there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you'd like to travel, maybe you go into the duty-free shop. I mean, the list goes on and on. In the 1960s, they talked terribly about free love, which had catastrophic effects. But so freedom is a word that we use so often. And I mean, just think even as our mantra as Americans, life, liberty, which is freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we're about. And I feel remiss if I don't mention William Wallace from Braveheart and um, the, the awesome scene where at the end of the movie, he's tied to a table being tortured to death and asked to recant. And instead of recanting, he cries, freedom, you know, Mel Gibson. And that, what is freedom? Right? Those words, that word sticks in our minds. We want freedom on our terms. Now, the New Testament uses that word about 50 times. Paul is the most, um, the biggest user of the word freedom. Jesus mentions freedom. Um, Peter mentions it. John. I think it's interesting that when Jesus came and started his public ministry in his hometown, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, opened the scroll, and read from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. You know it well, probably. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And he mentions the word liberty twice in that verse. And and the liberty is those who are oppressed and those who are captives. Now, he wasn't talking about liberation from Roman oversight. He was speaking about a different type of oppression or slavery. And I want to ask you this question, kind of what I did as a call to worship. Is there something that has enslaved you? Something that your heart has, it's on the throne of your heart. 
a desire, um, a need, a want, something that has become an idol in your life. Now, if you're a Christian, you can look back to the day when you started to follow Christ, when you professed faith in him, when you repented of sin and asked Jesus to be your Lord. And you can note a type of freedom that entered into your life. And you can start to compare what life was like before that as opposed to after. Maybe you're still in that moment where you're wondering about this Christian thing, this gospel. Is there something that is enslaving you right now? You might think you're free, but are you really free? Now, in the time of the Reformation, the famous reformer Martin Luther was in a debate, a theological debate with a man named Erasmus. And Erasmus maintained this. He said, men and women are able in themselves, they have the power to choose to do good or evil. We really have a free will. And Martin Luther wrote a treatise called The Bondage of the Will because he said, that's not true. We're free to sin. We're not free not to sin. We are bound of our will to ourselves. We are trying to serve ourselves. Autonomy, it literally means self-law. We are enslaved to our own desires and we don't realize it. And we think, I just wanna do whatever I want. That's real freedom. Most people, if you ask them to define freedom, any restraint being lifted, right? Some definition like that. Or more practically, it's getting to do what I want with no one imposing their rules or restrictions on me. And we tend to think that that's freedom, but is it really? What about, what about being enslaved to yourself? What about your own needs and wants? What about that oppressive idol? It's a type of slavery. Now, it's, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting here that anyone can be totally free from sin. I stand before you as a sinner myself. Um, apart from Christ, though, we are slaves to ourselves. And he invites us to be a different kind of slave, to slave to a good master, to serve a good Lord, and experience the freedom in Christ of serving Christ and serving others. The gospel has been summarized this way. I, I'm a big fan of Tim Keller in New York City and, and what he's written in his sermons and stuff. He summarizes the gospel this way, that you and I are far more sinful and broken than we ever realized, but we are far more loved than we dared imagine. And when that message hits home, a type of freedom comes in for us. We are free from ourselves because of the love of God. The gospel is so full of these these promises, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we cleaned up our act and became worthy, while we were still sinners. Or to go to the law, it was only after 400 years, after God made a promise to Abraham that Moses was given the law. It wasn't, here's the law, live according to this, and then I will emancipate you. I will deliver you from Exodus, from slavery. It was, I will deliver you out and then give you the law. The covenant came and the promise came already because God is a God of grace. He takes the initiative. And so there are all sorts of assurances in scripture. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What that means is there is nothing you could do that would take away God's love for you. And there's nothing you could do that would add more, more of his love for you. So all of a sudden, there's a kind of freedom. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And the, the shepherd calls and the sheep hear his voice and they come to him and no one can snatch them out of his hand. How secure you and I are in Christ. Now here's where preachers get nervous 
If I start talking about this kind of freedom a lot, it'll be abused, right? There's this hesitation. Freedom is scary. Real freedom is scary, and it needs to be regulated, the preacher would say. How else are they going to do the right thing? We need to do a balance of good news, but then law, a little bit of each, because there's this fear that if we're really given that assurance, then why would we act correctly? And just think about your normal life. There are a number of places where we see the opposite to be true. Before I was a uh, pastor, I was an engineer, a civil engineer, and I built buildings. And I was on the contracting side. As a general contractor, I would hire all these subcontractors. And the rule, and I'll say this is still the rule, if you're doing home construction, you hire a contractor, you never pay 100% until the work is 100% done. (laughs) Because you know what happens. Right? As soon as the incentive is gone, the behavior declines, and they never come back to finish whatever little details there, there are. Or if you're, you know, you've got students, okay? Think about college. You work really hard. I've got, a, I've got a sophomore and a junior at home. You work really hard to get the good grades for your college application. You send the applications off, and what happens to the grades your senior year? Dad, they're not going to see these grades. As long as I don't fail, I'm either in or I'm not based on my application. Why should I keep working hard? I just need to get by, right? You could probably come up with a hundred other illustrations of how that happens. Once the so-called reward is given, the incentive and motive is gone. And so we think, if I really am totally saved and assured of heaven and salvation because of what Christ has done, why would I obey the law? Why would I walk in his ways? Why wouldn't I just cast everything off and do whatever I want? Well, I'm going to address that from what Paul says here in Galatians 5, and I'm going to, I'm going to hit it under three headings. Legalism, license, and in the middle is love. Okay, so the legalism is the first thing. In this text, and you guys haven't been tracking through Galatians like we have all summer, but the first two chapters of Galatians are Paul saying his autobiographical credentials. I'm an apostle called by God, and I'm commissioned to teach this. So what I'm saying is trustworthy. And then the next two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, are theological. And he wrestles with what then is the law and relationship of grace to the law. And it's really heady in those next two. But Paul's theology is never disconnected from real life. So in chapters 5 and 6, he now goes into, now here's, a, here's what we do with living. And there was a problem in the church in Galatia which is, by, by the way, modern-day Turkey. Paul had started this church. He proclaimed Christ and the freedom of Christ. People got saved. The church got formed. And then he went to the next place. Behind him came some people that scholars call the Judaizers. These were Messianic Jews. They were Jews who had received Jesus as their Messiah. But they said, Paul only gave you half the message. Yes, you are saved by Jesus, but also Moses. You now have to become a Jew and a Christian to be saved. In other words, Jesus plus. And Paul is worked up about this. Because if you have Jesus plus, you no longer have the gospel. The gospel is just Christ. If you add something to it, it's no longer the gospel at all. It's not good news. So Paul's language is really graphic here. Um, J.I. Packer, the Anglican theologian, called this the most violent piece of polemic writing in the New Testament. Paul's used some strong language already getting up to this point. And in this, look what he says in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Right? Why stop at the foreskin? Cut the whole thing off. He's that worked up. He's not being vengeful. He's just so passionate for the church having the true gospel message and the freedom Christ died for 
that he wants them to stop teaching this bad theology. It's that important. It's not good to think, well, clean living, right? A little, I'm doing a good job. That's why I deserve to be, to be in heaven. Even that little harmful thought of clean living, that's why I got the good parking spot. That's why I got the promotion at work because I look at how good I'm doing. I'm doing well, so I'm being promoted. My works are earning something. That little bit means gospel's gone. None of us are worthy, and yet Christ says, I love you, and I've done it for you. The cross is all about his work, not ours. So Paul goes after that because what they wanted to do was they wanted to legislate morality. They wanted to say, here are the rules. Follow these rules and be good people. And then you're worthy of God. And it's not once we're worthy. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. This is a powerful message. And so it's not that Paul was saying the law is not needed, throw it away. Both groups were saying you should obey the law. They were both saying it for a different motivation. The Judaizers were saying you need to obey the law so you'll be saved. Paul was saying you need to obey the law because you are saved. Motivation is everything. I hate the word should or ought. I ought to do this. I should do this instead of I want to do this. One of the, one of the people that works at our church says um, there's an expression in his household where, where if someone is imposing obligation on him, he goes, ah, you should all over me. You should all over me. You're telling me I should do this stuff. You're appealing to some external motivation, some obligation. We hate obligation. The best motivator is actually love, which is where we're going to go. If you look at the pronouns in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul's saying, you, you, you. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And then he says, but we, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. That's part of our motivation, us hope. Now, again, language is important here. We use the word hope very different than the Bible does. How do you use the word hope? Well, I hope the Jaguars have a better season this year. That actually communicates uncertainty. I don't know if they're going to. I want them to. I don't know if they're going to. And so when we read the Bible and we see hope, we go, well, I hope I make it in. But the way the Bible uses hope is always with a, with a word of assurance and certainty. Hebrews 11 says that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. You can spell hope, S-U-R-E, in the Bible. And so Paul is saying, we are so confident that we are already saved that our motivation is love. And look at verse 6. He says, so, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Love is the great motivator. Now, there's a danger with this as well. Modern liberal theology is saying, love, love, love. Love at all costs. And it's translated to, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt somebody else. Now, how do you decide what hurts somebody else? What's your standard? What's your measurement? There is not one. And what you think won't hurt somebody else often does hurt somebody else. And they say, you really upset me. You really hurt my feelings on that. And you're like, well, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. And where's the standard? And there isn't one. And, and so this idea of love has to be understood in terms of the cross, in terms of Jesus, in terms of what God says. What, what is the summary of the law? Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law depends on those two things. That gives us an understanding of what we're supposed to do. Now, verse 13, Paul balances legalism 
with license over here and love is in the middle. So license, he says in 13, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't fall back into slavery. You can fall back into slavery by becoming a legalist and a religious person and doing all these things because you ought to. You can fall back into slavery by going back to the things that you used to desire that were bad. And God has given you a new heart. Don't go back to the bad things. How often do people think sin is what I really want? I love sin, and if I can get away with it, I'm going to choose it. There's an old movie, City Slickers, that I really like. It's about a middle-aged guy who's having a really hard time. He's in depression, and his wife talks to him. His buddy's talking him into going on this thing where he drives some cattle across, like, New Mexico. So it's like a week-long camping trip. So I'm going to share an illustration that's kind of locker room talk because three guys who are in a bad spot are riding a horse and just talking about life. And one of them, who's totally overly sexualized, goes, okay, hypothetical scenario. Beautiful woman, the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, comes down from outer space and you could be with her for one night and she goes away and no one would ever know about it. Would you do it? Yes or no? The one guy goes, absolutely. And then Billy Crystal's character goes, no, because I would know. I would know. It's not right. See, the thinking is, I want the sin if I can get away with it. I, I became a believer when I was 17 years old. And I've had a couple of instances where people much older than me who had become Christians later in life and tell their testimony, they sort of revel in their days of rebellion. And they took pity on me because I became a Christian when I was a teenager, and so somehow I missed out on living life because I've been walking in God's ways. I didn't get to sow my oats or whatever. And I think, no, no, there's no life in that. That's a path of death. God invites us to a much better thing. I pity you that it took so long for you to get into God's way. It's a better way. You know, in Constantine's era, some people delayed baptism until their deathbed, thinking baptism will forgive me of all my sins. I can do whatever I want, and if I time it just right, I can be forgiven and then, and then get into heaven. There's no freedom in that. That's not what God died for. That's not what he wants. So why obey God's law? Why try to love him with our whole heart? Why, why love our neighbor as ourself? I mean, he, Paul here in verse 14, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Why do it? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. One is to be fully human. Do it so that you are fully human. Jesus, I mean, uh, the Lord says to us through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, I will come to you and circumcise your heart, your heart of stone. I will make a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will write my law on your heart, and I will give you the desire and the ability to live the way you were supposed to live. That is good news for us. That is a true transformation it's not some kind of moral reformation, but it's a gospel transformation where you are a different kind of person because of what Christ has done. And to walk in his ways is to be truly human. Another reason is simply because you can. Yourself has been displaced. The cross was so scandalizing to you. You saw how broken and sinful you were, and yet you saw how much God loves you and what he was willing to pay. And you push, this is the expulsive power of a new affection. I love Jesus now because of his love for me, and it pushes myself off the throne of my heart. I've displaced myself, and now I live for Christ. I want to live according to his law because I can. Not because I have to, just because I can. I'm empowered to do it. My will is no longer bound. I'm now able to do what I was not able to do before. And the third, and probably the best way, the best reason, is simply to love God for nothing in return, which is a true gift of love. 
And let me wrap this up by quoting a, a parable, I think, that Charles um, Spurgeon made up, the 19th century preacher. He, te- he tells of a kingdom and a man who was a farmer in that kingdom, and he loved his work and he farmed well, and one day he produced the biggest and best carrot he had ever made, big carrot. And he decided what he was going to do with the carrot was he was going to present it to the king of his of his uh, city and say, this is a gift for you in gratitude for your care for your citizens and your love as our king. I give this to you. And when he did it, the king said, well, in response, I give you an acre of land so you can continue doing what you do so well. And another man watching this said, if that's what he got for a carrot, what would I get for a horse? (coughs) And this man raised horses. So he took his best horse and brought it to the king and gave it to him under the same basic speech. The king, seeing what was going on, said, thank you, and walked away with the horse. (laughs) See the difference? One person was actually able to give a gift of love. The other person was enslaved to themselves. He wasn't giving a horse. He was trying to get something for himself. We love God and obey his laws simply because we love God, not because of what it will do for us. Everything that could be done for you has been done. It was handled right there. You're free in Christ. So let me give you this final idea from St. Augustine of Hippo. In the fourth century, he said this. Frighteningly, he said this. Love God and do whatever you like in that order. Let's pray.